Now, there's a certain irony about today. Uh, you're doing a series. This is the third in the series. Uh, you went out uh, into Otley and you asked people if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Not surprisingly, one of those questions was about suffering and not surprisingly, one of them was hasn't science disproved faith? And uh, Chris has asked me to do that. He's asked me to do that latter question, not knowing that um, my history, my history at uh, secondary school, Hinchley Wood in Surrey, uh, was that uh, in chemistry, at what was in the old days, the old money, O-levels, I got grade nine. Now, grade nine is what it says, it's at the bottom, not the top. And uh, grade nine was to get five and under. So your pastor has asked somebody who got five or under in chemistry O-level <laughs> to address the subject, hasn't science disproved faith? Uh, I, I, I think I got probably three marks, and I remember it vividly. It was, um, you know the papers there, you look at the questions, you turn it over. It's a bit like Mr. Bean, you turn it upside down to see if it makes any more sense, and so on, it didn't. And uh, I just spent the first five minutes writing my name meticulously uh, and my number, my exam number. Uh, but after that, it was just a blank. But nevertheless, here we are, we're looking at the subject, hasn't science disproved faith? And I want us to do that through the lens of Psalm 19 that was read to us, or that we read together, most of it we read together before. We didn't actually read to the end of it. And if you open at Psalm 19... You see, it ends with the words, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So let's pray together. Father, indeed, may the meditation, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight as we come to this glorious psalm, as we come to address this subject that we can only lightly touch upon. But may it equip us, may it actually answer some questions for us. May most of all it give us confidence to see there's no actual conflict between science and faith because you are God of both. So Lord God, we ask that you help us this morning. Amen. Amen. The Big Bang, theory of everything, quirks. To most people, uh, these words are familiar to us, sound at the same time, rather intimidating. But we know our friends, our non-Christian friends, often ask questions about science uh, and ask the question, can I reconcile science and what science seems to tell me with what you're telling me from the Bible about what it means to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The issue is often coloured by the culture that we live in and the fact that for many years now, atheists have promoted the, the myth that belief in God and belief in science are in conflict. It's either one or the other. The impression is that no true uh, scientist could possibly be a Christian. When in fact, many brilliant Christians from histories down through to today were Christians. Michael Faraday, Isaac Newton... Joseph Lister, Louis Pasteur, to name but four. And today, that continues. Sir Robert Boyd, who is Professor of Physics at the University College in London, Owen Gingrich, who is Professor of Astronomy at Harvard, are both strong, committed Christians, 
who see no conflict in the fact that they are men of faith and men of science. So, are Christianity and science compatible? Has science made belief in God redundant? Well, let's make five quick points by way of introduction about science itself. And the first is, science is great. Scientific knowledge has changed remarkably over the last hundred years. We start learning about things like atoms and our own genes and the planet that we live in and as we're reminded, the universe itself. But that extra knowledge has also brought with it great changes to our lives, isn't it? Huge improvements to our standard of living. My father had most of his teeth removed without anaesthetic. That was only 70 or 80 years ago. I thank God for anaesthetic. <laughs> I'm sure we all do. There's huge advances in technology, agriculture, medical, whatever sphere you want to look at. Science is great. As mankind has discovered some of these hidden things that are there in our world. But secondly, science isn't everything. Though these are great advances, uh, advances and science has improved the quality of our life no end, it's also given us incredibly destructive power. So now we live in a world that talks about global warming and we're concerned about that. We have fuels and pesticides. We're concerned about plastics, a modern invention, but the danger that it can make to our earth and to pollute the earth. We have weapons that have the potential to destroy life en masse. Science isn't everything. Thirdly, science can't tell us how to live. Whilst making incredible advances, how we decide what is right. You see, science never addresses those questions. There are moral questions that science doesn't address and can't address. But it throws up issues to do with morality. Cloning is a, is a point in instance, isn't it? We now have the ability to clone human beings, to be God, if you like, to be authors of life itself. But many scientists believe that that is going too far. But they have no objective basis for their argument if they're not Christians. You see, science opens up issues for us that immediately take us into the moral realm. Good and bad, right and wrong. Actually, science can't help us with those questions. It just throws up more conundrums. No, we can't decide how to live merely on the basis of scientific knowledge. So to think that science answers all the questions is... It's just to enter the world of unreality. Science is great. Science isn't everything. Science can't tell us how to live. And fourthly, science can't answer all our questions. Science, you see, is good at telling us how things work. But it doesn't address the why question. Why are things the way they are? And just because science can't deal with a question doesn't mean that question doesn't matter. Take the issue of love as a point in instance. 
Could we do a scientific survey into love? Can you put love in a test tube and quantify it and define it? Would you consider carrying out a scientific experiment to help you to decide whether somebody loved you or not? You see, science can't address probably one of the biggest issues in our life, our longing for love. Science can't answer all our questions. Imagine you had a test before you married somebody to really make sure that they loved you. What would that scientific test be? The mind boggles. But fifthly, science can and is used to propagate beliefs and not facts. Science today in our culture, in our media, in in education is so often universally just accepted and trusted that it's become an umbrella for people, for scientists, to peddle their own philosophical beliefs under the guise of science. In many ways, science has become a philosophy, even a new religion. As we've learned more about the formation of life, about the the earth, the beginning of life and so on, it's assumed that those facts mean that the stories, the ancient stories that are in every culture, in every in every religion about the origins of the world, the, the creation myths, are derided. Because <coughs> they don't fit with evolution. The net effect is that so-called myths, whether they're Christian myths or Hindu myths or whatever myths you want to look at, are dismissed as being irrelevant and belonging to a bygone age of uneducated people. The faith of all religions, therefore, is tended to be dismissed and gives rise to our question today in the face of the so-called hard facts of science. And it's claimed that those of us who still believe in God are just old-fashioned, certainly unscientific and naive. If only we'd stick with the facts, we'd see, plainly see, there is no God. There is, therefore, no meaning to life. There is no purpose to life. We're just part of an evolutionary cycle. We're here by random chance. It's senseless we live, it's senseless we die. It's just meaningless. Now that worldview essentially is the worldview of scientific materialism. It cannot answer the deep questions of life that are deeply rooted in the human heart and soul. So science is often used to propagate Beliefs, not scientific facts. Richard Dawkins is a point in instance. Instead of remaining objective, as scientists should, many modern scientists such as Richard Dawkins, who's a famous and brilliant geneticist, uses it to deride any thought of faith. He, he writes this, It's absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane, or wicked. But I'd rather not consider that. You see, he's come to the facts as he sees them, and has interpreted them through his world view, his grid, and therefore dismissed an alternative view. 
that actually is helped by many other good scientists who don't buy into necessarily that theory of evolution, which has many holes in it, though it's propagated as if it's foolproof. You see, no scientist is outside of having their own particular view and prejudice and belief and using science to propagate that belief. So, we mustn't believe the lie that science has the monopoly on hard facts and that Christianity is just about wishful thinking. Now, we need to ask at this point, a very good question is, what do we mean by science? What do we mean by faith? Actually, what do we mean by science? Well, by science, we mean what a famous scientist, Kepler, said. He described science as thinking God's thoughts after him. Great scientist of, uh, I think, the 19th century, Kepler, thinking God's thoughts after him. He looked at the evidence and he thought, we live in a world that is obviously ordered and designed as many mysteries that are yet to be unfolded. <coughs> but his purpose was to use the scientific abilities and methods that he had discovered to think God's thoughts after him. And faith is not, as a little boy put it, believing what you know ain't true. Faith, according to the Bible, is trust. It's trust. It's not, it's not, as one lady said to me once, so I wish I had your faith, as if it was like the measles. It's something you either contracted or not. Whereas faith in the Bible is always rooted in facts. Christians are called to look at the evidence. The evidence particularly of Jesus Christ, the evidence of his life, his death, his resurrection, to look at these historical facts and say, are they true or not? Faith, trust in God, is ultimately a call to look at the evidence, which is actually overwhelming, and put your trust, your faith, in the God, the God of creation and the God of redemption, as Psalm 19 has it. Which leads us to this psalm. What, therefore, is the reason that a man, a woman, a boy or girl can have, can put their trust and faith in God. Well, let's have a look at Psalm 19 together. It divides into two parts, as I'm sure you're aware. The first part is about the creation itself, verses 1 to 6. God's general revelation in creation. Look what it says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? Listen, he says. Listen to the creation. It's pouring forth speech. It's telling you, telling you what? Telling you that there is a creator. God's very creation reveals something about it. The heavens are an amazing display of God's creative power and his influence. Night and day, sun and moon, stars in heaven testify to the existence of a creator. It actually takes more faith to believe that this thing happened by random chance than it does to think that there is a creator. A day will come where people will say, well, see, actually, how could you believe 
<coughs> that this world so finely balanced. We just had one illustration. I learned that this morning that the that the earth would wobble if it were not for the sun, or for the moon rather. Now, isn't that amazing? But the world is is so beautifully balanced. How could possibly that happen by chance? It actually requires an enormous leap of faith to think that so by an evolutionary process which would require millions and millions of years, would even yet deliver what we have around us today in the creation. How can you believe that in the face of the evidence? This is what the psalmist is saying. Thousands of years ago, the creation itself pours forth speech. It shouts to us that there is a God. It says also, verses 3 to 4, everybody knows it. There's no one place in creation that's not aware of that. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, speaking of the creation. Yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, verse 4. Their words to the end of the world. In the heaven, God has pitched a tent for the sun. In other words, he's saying, wherever you go in the world, world, the evidence is there. In the very beauty and splendour of creation. You see, we go into an art gallery, don't we? And we look at a painting, and we admire that painting. And what the first thing we say? We, we say, we may say, what an amazing painting. But sooner or later, we'll say, what an amazing artist. We, ne- we would never go into an art gallery and think, oh, well, that just happened. Isn't, isn't that amazing? Isn't it? It, just, it just evolved. It just came to be there. It, it's, we, we look at anything and we, we, we look at a great building and we say, how do they do this? We went to um, the, the place near Ripon, what's it called? That, that, um, Fountains, Abbey. Fountains Abbey, 12th century. How did they build that without any mechanism? We didn't go in there thinking, well, this is a remarkable, it just happened. <laughs> we, you look at anything, don't you? You look at any building any work of art, anything that's constructed, and you say, wow, how brilliant, how clever, how ingenious, how wonderful. That's what the creation is there for. It doesn't speak words to it, it just speaks of itself, of the creator himself, of the Lord himself. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, commenting really on this psalm, says this in Romans 1 verse 18, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. See what Paul is saying? In the very creation, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power to create the oceans and the mountains and the universe and his divine nature, the fact that there is a creator of incredible genius and artistry behind it, are there for all to see, said men are without excuse. It's inexcusable. It's ludicrous to look at it and think it happened by chance. Friends, the proof is all around us. God has put it there for us, day after day, night after night. It's staring us in the face. It's a silent witness. It leaves us without excuse. I once had the privilege of interviewing an astronaut who had walked upon the, earth, upon the moon, Jim Irwin. 
And Jim Irwin left the earth, not a Christian. And he tells the story how it was a three-day flight to the moon, and on the first day he looked out, and he looked back on earth, he thought all his loved ones and so on, and he said the earth was the kind of, there it was in the darkness of space, it was, it was the size of a football. The next day, we, you know, we moved on. He woke up on the second morning, looked out that little window of the capsule, and there, down on Earth, he said, we'd come that much further, and it shrunk. He said it was now the size of an orange. And he was suddenly beginning to be overwhelmed by the sheer immensity of space itself and his minuteness and the minuteness of people upon Earth compared to this immensity. Third morning came, he looked out the window. Now, it was just the size of a golf ball. Do you know what he did? He put his thumb up and he blotted out earth with his thumb. And at that point, he was overwhelmed by a sense of God. The power, the immensity of God himself. This is a God who could put his thumb out and actually cover over the whole of the universe, let alone the whole of earth. He came back and he became a Christian. It was the power of creation. But creation is a silent witness. The psalmist goes on to talk about the fact that God has not simply given us the witness of creation. He's given us a verbal witness. He has spoken to us. Because whilst the creation tells us how great God is, how magnificent, how powerful, it doesn't answer the why question. Why are we here? Why has God made us? What's the world about? Who is God? That's where the second half of the psalm comes in. And God's personal revelation of himself in verses 7 to 11, because he switches from the creation to the law. In verse 7 he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold. They are much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward now there's a switch between these two passages in the opening passages David has been referring to God as the creator Elohim, God now he starts talking about the Lord the Lord, Yahweh is that Hebrew word that is most used in the Old Testament talking about the personal nature you see God tells us about Elohim, the, the power of God and the majesty of God and the sublimeness of God. But the Lord reveals what this God is like, why he's made us, what he wants us to do. And, so, and that's the word that is used repeatedly by the psalmist there. You notice uh, Lord, capital in your Bible, the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, and so on. It's hugely significant because it's, pointing us to how God reveals himself. And he's revealed himself in history, the history of the world and the history of the Bible, through his people, through the Israelites in the Old Testament. And that word, Yahweh, the Lord, carries with it a sense of God's commitment 
and his love and his goodness. So we get this very emotive description that reaches a crescendo in verse 10. How precious this revelation of God through his law, through his self, through his word really is. Now don't let the words law or command put you off here. It simply means all that God wants you to know about himself. God reveals himself through his law, through his words. We reveal ourselves through our words, don't we? Think what a world will be like if we can't use words. Think how hard it is for people who are, are, are dumb. I mean, how it's just our words reveal ourselves. And through our words, we reveal ourselves to other people. That's what God does. And David wasn't simply referring to the Ten Commandments here, but all of God's self-revelation that we find in the Old Testament. And how perfect, verse 7 he puts, how perfect and trustworthy it is. How, verse 8, how radiant and right. How pure and enduring. And the climax of it, how precious is God's revelation. Why? Well, because as David explains here, verse 7, it brings refreshment. God is a God who reveals himself in order to refresh us and to revive us and to enable us to live wisely. Verse 8, to bring joy to the heart and provide illumination so we can see the way to go. Verse 11, it warns us to be faithful and enjoy a great reward. You see, not only is God's general revelation celebrated here in the first half of this psalm, it's also his special revelation through his word. And of course, that word comes into clear and perfect focus in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the beginning of John's Gospel, it describes Jesus as the word. All the way through, it's talking about the word. The word became flesh. It's meaning Jesus became flesh. But you see, what it's saying is, Jesus, when you look at the person of Jesus, he reveals completely, entirely, perfectly who God is, what he's like, and what he wants. He communicates God unmistakably to us. You see, we can look at the creation, and because it's a fallen world, the creation not only has splendid, wonderful things, it has fearsome things in it. It has tsunamis, and earthquakes, and disasters, and floods, things that can kill and maim people. And we we get a mixed message in that sense from it. Yes, it's powerful, it's awesome, but it can be terrifying. We don't learn enough about God just through the general revelation, through creation itself. That's why we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when Christ comes, he fills out, he completes, he fulfills all that we've been told about God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, in his own person. So what is he like? Well, we could actually substitute his name here and get a flavour of it, couldn't we? Jesus is perfect, reviving the soul. He's trustworthy, making wise the simple. He is right, bringing joy to our hearts. He is radiant, giving light to our eyes. He is pure, enduring forever. Jesus is sure and altogether righteous. Indeed, Jesus is more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. By him we are warned, and in following him and obeying him, 
there is great reward. You see, Jesus is the glorious, ultimate revelation of God. He, in fact, is the one the New Testament tells us created this world. By a word of his power, this creation that we've been thinking about this morning was created by a word of his power. Think about that. Those of you that are parents, don't you wish that you had a word of power? A word that was instantly obeyed, that you said something and it happened? Don't any of us wish for that? But we know too well that we haven't got that. But imagine. Let there be. Let there be light. Let there be an ocean. Let there be sun. Let there be stars. That you just have to say it and it happens. I mean, that is mind-boggling beyond comprehension, isn't it? But that's Jesus. He is the creator. He made this world, this universe. He is the, the God of the cosmos. And we only understand so little about it. But by a word of his power he created. But here's the condescension of God. Here's the amazing thing about that God. How does he use that power? He uses that power to come down to earth, to rescue people who instinctively live their life foolishly pulling here, pushing him to the edge, wanting to take his gifts, but reject the giver. And God, in his love and his mercy, in, in ways that we can never truly understand, condescends. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, said the apostles, and we have seen his glory. And friends, 20 centuries later, we are called to their witness, the apostolic witness to the life of Christ that invites us to look at it, to examine it, to explore it, to challenge it, to question it. But every point you press it, you discover there is something totally unique. No man spoke like this man spoke. No man ever lived like this man lived. No man ever died and rose again from the dead. And the resurrection is the pièce de résistance, if you like. It is... It is the final piece of evidence, the final sign. See, all of us are going to manage to die. We've just got to live long enough to achieve that one. But none of us can come back from the dead. Here's the same man, the author of creation, who comes back from the dead because he has defeated our greatest enemies, sin and death. The great problem with the world is not the issue of science and all those questions and so on. It is the problem of our sin and the fact that we're going to die. And in the face of those two things, we are utterly powerless. Try going from here and not sinning today in word or thought or deed. You'll find it an impossibility. Try not dying. You'll find it an impossibility. What have we got? Twin enemies in the face of which we are powerless. And God has come to the rescue and defeated our greatest enemies, sin and death. You see, the psalmist, the Bible, the Christian faith calls us to look at the evidence, look at the facts, look at the Lord Jesus Christ and come to a conclusion. God speaks to us through creation that he is 
that he's all-powerful, that he's almighty, that he's brilliantly creative. But in his son Jesus, he comes to us clearly, unmistakably, personally. And he comes to rescue. A rescue that we all need. He comes to rescue us from the judgment to come. Because you see, if you've made this world, and if you've provided for this world, and if you've lavished every day, every second of every day, your sustaining power and keeping upon this world, then aren't you right to expect a recognition of that? Aren't you right to look for some gratitude and some recognition that it is you that has done these things? But you see, when we rebel against God, What we're saying is, we are God of this world, not God. And that's the atrocity of sin. And that's why we will be called to account. Because we can see it all, we can hear it all, we've received it all, and yet we live as if it doesn't matter. And God says it does matter. I've made you, I've sent Jesus to redeem you. And one day, you know, I'm going to recreate this world a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to continue living in a resurrection body, a physical body, akin to that of the Lord Jesus, the first fruits from the dead. And God has done that through his son Jesus and he calls us to trust in him. So I don't know where you're at this morning. It may well be that uh, you're here, you're a Christian, and hopefully this has encouraged you to see that when you have those opportunities tomorrow or this week to talk about your faith, that you can point people to the facts, to the evidence. You can challenge them to think about these things. But it may be here that you're here and you're not yet a Christian. Well, look at the evidence, will you? It invites you to do that. I don't know anybody who's not looked at the evidence genuinely, thoughtfully, and not come to the conclusion, yes, there is a God. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's led them to trust that God, but at least it's led them to recognise that this world is not chance, random happening. There is an almighty one. But my friends, that almighty one is also the lover of your soul, who's come to rescue and redeem. As David puts it, my rock and my redeemer. And finally, Christian here this morning, you know, Life is often very tough for Christians in all sorts of ways. I just want to remind you that this is our God, the creator, the rock, the redeemer. Where is he calling us to trust him today, this week, in a specific area of our life? He is utterly trustworthy. So trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are not a silent God. Indeed, the very creation screams at us of your existence. That is enough in itself to tell us that you are there. But we thank you in your mercy you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our rock, our redeemer, our saviour. That you expressed and showed yourself perfectly through him. That when we look at him, when we hear his words, when we look at his life, we see you in your perfection, in your beauty, in your love, and in your mercy. Help us, Lord, to trust you 
Help us to have a bigger view of how great you are. We ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen. Amen.